Welcome to another episode of the podcast Unbecoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. We're on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. Send any questions or comments or suggestions that you have to OnBecomingPodcast at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing on the podcast, you might consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast. Today we're examining the role of Christianity in Western culture. In an earlier podcast, I examined the reasons for the decline of Christianity, particularly in the United States, which has been, at least until now, more religious than its European counterparts. As we saw, more and more people now describe their beliefs as none, that is, none of the usual organized religions you usually get in a list like that. But if you think Christianity has simply been left behind, this episode is designed to show you just how deeply the assumptions, the prejudices, the ideals that are all distinctly Christian are still present in Western culture. By the end of this episode, you'll discover that the secular values hailed by Western society are actually deeply Christian values. You'll also discover that every single issue in the culture wars is based on Christianity. Let me make clear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that one side of the culture war has the ideals or values of Christianity to argue for its, ca- its side or its case. I'm saying that both sides are using Christian values, though each side appeals to different values in different ways. Let me put this another way. The current culture war is not between those who follow Jesus and, and call themselves evangelicals or Christians or Roman Catholics and the rest of the people that we could call pagans. The assumptions and the ideals of Christianity are so widespread in our culture that all sides appeal to Christian ideas for validation. But rather than continue to tell you that, let me show that to you. To sketch out the differences, I'll be looking at a recent book that came out in 2019 that provides a sweeping history of Christianity. It's a big book, so if you were to decide to read it, you would need to you know, carve out a chunk of time. The title is Dominion. Subtitle is How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. The author is Tom Holland, uh, not to be confused with the guy who plays Spider-Man, tells us how his history came into being. Earlier in life, Holland saw Christianity as something like a relic from when human beings were superstitious. By the way, just as a kind of comment, many people are superstitious in one way or another today. This is, this is not something merely ancient. It, it, it goes on uh, among all kinds of people, including people who are religious and, and probably in their theological heart should know better. Anyway, as a boy, he attended Sunday school and noticed that an illustration in the text they had using Adam and Eve was accompanied by a brachiosaur. He knew that human beings had never lived at the same time as dinosaurs, and the fact that the teacher didn't seem to understand or care whether humans or dinosaurs coexisted, well, it bothered him. Over time, Christianity came to be seen by Holland as, and particularly this is the the God of the Bible, as the po-faced enemy of liberty and fun. Religion seemed to him, as it seems to many people, including many religious people, about prohibiting all that would be fun. In case you're thinking that this is unusual, 
I should mention that <clears throat> I often have the case when I propose to my intro students, bear in mind these are students who are usually in their first year, often their first semester, that perhaps the laws or the rules or the virtues of the Old and the New Testaments were designed to make life good. Many were skeptical. Many of my students saw such rules as primarily designed to keep people from having fun. And so, of course, I tried to point out that it would be a very cruel God who would actually create rules to make people miserable. In any case, what shook Holland out of his assumptions about Christianity was the contrast between it and various ancient cultures. When he started writing on the Persian invasions of Greece in the late stage of the Roman Empire, he was shocked how alien it seemed to him, a reaction that only grew with time. He points out that the glory of Rome was only possible because of enslavement and provides a, a quote from Tacitus on how Rome functioned. After all, we have slaves drawn from every corner of the world in our households, practicing strange customs and foreign cults or none, and it is only by means of terror that we can hope to coerce such scum. Holland also, in his studies, read how Caesar was reported to have killed a million Gauls and to have slaved another million. In case you're thinking, well, it's not that many people, you have to keep in mind that back, back at that time, a million people was a very, very large number. All you need to do is think about the fact that there were very few people um, who sentenced Socrates to death uh, there are about 500 members of the, of the Senate. So here's what Holland writes in response. It was not just the extremes of callousness that unsettled me, but the complete lack of sense that the poor or the weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. Why did I find that disturbing? Because in my morals and ethics, I was not a Spartan or Roman at all. He goes on to give the example of Leonidas, a group of people who practice eugenics and train the young to, as he puts it, kill the uppity untermenschen by night. That is, the poor and the weak who dared to ask for attention were the ones that needed to be killed. Let me add as an example the Colosseum in Rome. Most of us know about the fights of the gladiators and the fact that the audience often got to choose which person would die. But the Colosseum was also the place where thousands of animals and human beings were killed. And I'm not talking over a period of time, but there were many, many days on which literally thousands of animals and human beings were killed. Now, here's my, my assumption. I doubt that most of us would want to live in such a society. My point is not that, sorry to say, some of us listening to this podcast would not have been seen as important enough, though that's possible too. Instead, I'm talking about how comfortable you would be living in a society in which human life was basically worthless, in which slavery was seen as completely acceptable because some people just deserve to be slaves. Even the very enlightened Aristotle thought that some people were simply designed or destined to be slaves because they did not have the same human potential that other human beings had. 
Of course, Aristotle also thought that women were either unable to exercise their potential to become full human beings, that's the kind and generous reading of, of Aristotle, or that he thought that women simply didn't have the same potential as do men. That's the reading that, alas, is probably correct. My point here is simply that few of us would want to live in a society in which it was believed that only free male citizens deserved to have any kind of power. In other words, men without property, women, slaves, and the mentally handicapped would have all been seen as less than fully human. That my belief in God had faded over the course of my teenage years did not mean that I had ceased to be a Christian. As you may have guessed, an important component of this episode is this question, who counts as Christian? Holland realizes that all of his basic assumptions about how to organize society, how to treat other people, had come from or else were strongly shaped by Christian ideals and values. Given that, he makes the following startling claim. So profound has been the impact of Christianity on the development of Western civilization that it has come to be hidden from view. Remember when we talked about Gadamer and the fact that all of us come from and are wrapped up in traditions? Put otherwise, we all operate with assumptions that are, by and large, shared by others around us. And those traditions are often t taken so much for granted that we've never actually thought about them. Now, I pointed to the fact that Nietzsche believes that our most important judgments in terms of importance to the person holding them, are made by our muscles. My work on hermeneutics has made it clear that much of what we believe is based on intuition or intuitive reasoning. That will have to be treated, though, on another podcast. For the moment, let's just say that as much as we like to think that our decisions and our actions are purely our own, that's not true. Mr. Rogers was right that you're special and there's no one in the world just like you, but there are plenty of people who are remarkably similar to you in lots of important ways, and they influence you. Let me put this very pointedly. We would all like to think that all of our views and ideas and such are in place as the result of rigorous logic, careful analysis, study, and reflection. But the reality is that our most basic beliefs are ones that we tend not even to think about. We don't see them. They're so basic that it's just like they're there. We do grow up with certain values and we reject some, though what we retain is usually much more than what we reject. And what we reject is often rejected on the basis of the values that we decide to keep. But moral concerns and values are often so basic to our worldview or to our outlook that we just don't see them. And this is what happens with Holland. Holland realizes when he starts writing about Christianity that the assumptions that he has within him are so basically Christian that he asks himself, am I still a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? The answer to this question is actually answered differently by different Christian groups. And that's always been the case. American evangelicals like to think that they've inherited the gospel and that it's their job to evangelize the world. They're not the only group that has that assumption. 
When I was growing up, what I was told was that I needed to ask Jesus into my heart in order to be a Christian. If you've grown up evangelical, what I've just said may sound like a truth so obvious it doesn't need to be stated. If you didn't grow up evangelical, it may be such a a strange thing to say that you might wonder what in the world that could possibly mean. In any case, it's not actually in the Bible. There's no place in either the Hebrew or Christian scripture in which a requirement like this can be found. Now, there's a verse in the book of Revelation that reads, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, perhaps this message can be generalized in the way that evangelicals have, but the reality is that this passage is addressed to the church at Laodicea. To read the verses addressed to us today is, well, a kind of unusual interpretation. At this point of time, being a Christian has come to mean holding a certain set of beliefs. Which set? Well, the answer, of course, is going to depend on which Christian group you ask. However, bear in mind that no one has the right to define what being a Christian means. If you're a Roman Catholic, you are free to say that the magisterium and the pope decide such things. If you're Eastern Orthodox, there are various leaders who are in charge of deciding such things. Evangelicalism, on the other hand, simply doesn't have anything like an official pope. It doesn't have a magisterium. There isn't any kind of final a court of appeal. Now, a further and thernier complication is the fact that the vast majority of Christian beliefs today didn't exist originally. This is not necessarily bad, but it does mean that one has to keep in mind that being a Christian in the past was a lot simpler. There was a lot less to believe. And of course, if one was or is illiterate, as most people were throughout history, one would only know the most basic things about Christianity. For instance, exactly what it means for Jesus to be fully human and fully divine is something that theologians talk about, but it's not exactly dinner conversation in most families. Holland sums up the world before Christianity with a quote from Thucydides. The strong do what they have the power to do and the weak must suck it up. But the rise of Christianity means an inversion of values comes about. Paul preaches the message of love. He writes, The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Whereas Judaism had been a religion closely connected to one's ethnic origin, Christianity broke away from that. The gospel that both Jesus and Paul preached was for everyone. In effect, Christianity allowed for a new sense of community that included all. Even more important, this community was somewhat skeptical about the rich. Instead, it celebrated the poor and those in need. Why? Because the leader of the movement had been willing to allow himself to be put to death, and he provided the example for everyone else. Further, Jesus himself had set the example by spending time with various marginalized people, adulterers, tax collectors, prostitutes, people who were literally accused of partying too much. Jesus' message was fundamentally one of love. When asked what the most important commandment was, Jesus responded, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Similarly, Paul writes, the entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. It's important to note that the early followers of Jesus were divided regarding who he was. Marcion, who was later declared a heretic, thought it unseemly that the God of the universe could have taken on human form. People were still fighting in the world of Christianity about which of the writings were authoritative. Marcion chose ten letters of Paul and the Gospel of Luke, and then Irenaeus came along and included three additional Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John. But things really came to a head when Christianity becomes the official Roman religion. Constantine recognized that if Christianity was to be the official Roman religion, then there needed to be more agreement concerning matters of the faith. Thus, in 325, he brings together a collection of theologians to write the Nicene Creed, an attempt to put into clear prose the essential teachings of Christianity. But as Holland points out, what was at stake was both religious and political. Here's how Holland puts this. Constantine had hit upon a momentous discovery, that the surest way to join a people as one was to unite them not in common rituals, but a common belief. But I think Holland is not quite right here. I think actually people are best united when both their beliefs and their rituals mutually confirm one another. In any case, there's a tendency in Christian history to assume that once the Nicene Creed comes up into existence, everyone is on board. But of course, there's never been such a point in Christian history. Obviously, in the past, there simply weren't all that many Christian options. Today, we don't, don't have that problem. Just think of all the various views of people claiming to be Christians today. When Constantine became Christian, a remarkable transformation, he started to wonder about what to do with the various competing Christian beliefs, because they were all over the place. Jesus was merely divine, Jesus was merely human, etc., etc. Whereas the Romans were comfortable with a religion that involved doing things, like making sacrifices at temples or even paying their income tax, Constantine came to think that Christianity is ultimately about proper belief. And this is why the Nicene Creed exists. It is an attempt to formulate what Orthodox Christianity is. But of course, that also meant that correct belief would now be monitored by the Roman bureaucracy. It was assumed that the Nicene Creed encapsulate the universally correct belief, and so anyone who disagrees is potentially subject to prosecution. Indeed, the Code of Theodosius of 380 demanded that everyone have a correct view of the Trinity, claiming that those without such a view are, quote, foolish madmen and would be, quote, branded with the ignominious name of heretics. There were actually people who were beheaded as a result of this law. However, one must never forget that a document like this is not sufficient to establish a religion. First, it doesn't cover anything other than belief, and there are a lot of aspects of the practice of Christianity that are not reducible to beliefs, that are not simply uh, beliefs in practice. Second, 
people were still allowed to believe what they chose to believe. Put a different way. If you've ever attended a church at which the Nicene Creed is recited, you might have assumed that everyone saying it must believe it all. But I think the reality is that most Christians only have a vague idea of what all that stuff means. Reciting it is more like a way of showing one's commitment to the community than necessarily a reflection of what one believes. I don't want to spend more time on this point here, but I will return to the Nicene Creed later as well as to the subjects of uh, the subject of creeds. Early on in Christian history, there are tensions between various groups representing different views. While it might sound unpleasant to our ears, the early Christians had disagreements that were so significant that it led to various factions killing one another. We normally hear about Christians being thrown to the lions. While that belief is based on some facts, the number of actual Christians who lost their lives to outside persecution is probably much less than we have been accustomed to think. In her book, The Myth of Persecution, How Early Christians Invented a Story of Martyrdom, Candida Moss examines the evidence for the persecution of early Christians and finds that many of the stories about persecution are either exaggerated or just simply false. I want to turn back to this book later, but here I just want to point out that many of our assumptions regarding early Christianity are not fully based on fact. But despite the various disagreements among Christians themselves, the Roman Empire began to change. Whereas the heroes portrayed in the Iliad despised the weak and the poor, Julian, the nephew of Constantine, declared that the chief concern of the gods had always been with the poor and the downtrodden. This is a remarkable rereading or reading into a tradition. Julian found it remarkable that Christians had always remained concerned for the poor and took collections for the sick, the shipwrecked, the imprisoned, and widows and orphans. In other words, the Christian injunction led to the establishment of a systematic effort to help such people. It was the beginning of something like Social Security. While Julian had repudiated Christianity's youth, he envied the way Christians took care of the marginalized. As the church father Gregory puts it, Reflect on who they are, and you will understand their dignity. They have taken upon them the person of the Savior, for he, the compassionate, has given them his own person. The point is that everyone deserved dignity. This was a teaching that was a true inversion of values. Or consider this statement by Gregory. Not all the universe would constitute an adequate payment for the soul of a mortal. Human beings under the tutelage of Christianity were now considered priceless. Now, what's interesting about this is the Romans had, among many practices, the practice of infanticide. They usually wouldn't kill infants directly. Instead, they would leave them at the rubbish tips or the, the dump. Some people would come and rescue the boys and make them into slaves. Girls who survived usually became prostitutes. Other than Judaism, Christians were the first to decry the practice. They acted accordingly and began rescuing abandoned babies. But then, of course, it went further. Gregory insisted that lepers should be treated in a dignified way and urged the rich to free their slaves. 
If you study the environment, you realize that it represents a fundamental change in terms of how Christianity was envisioned. But the change isn't quite as straightforward as you might think. The person of the Enlightenment usually comes to mind as the archenemy of Christianity turns out to be much more Christian than usually advertised. Most of us know Voltaire from his atheistic writings, but much less known. Voltaire had the vision of the brotherhood of humanity. It's interesting, Voltaire thought of Christianity as fractious and contentious because of its different groups and their theological arguments. But what Voltaire wanted was actually very Christian, which is why many Catholics in France supported him. His friend Diderot wrote, if there were a Christ, I assure you that Voltaire would be saved. The point here is that the values of Christianity are assumed even by someone who is supposed to be its arch enemy. Moreover, when you examine his criticism of Christianity, you see that he judges Christianity by its own values, what philosophers call imminent critique, not a critique from afar, from another viewpoint, but a critique that starts with whatever group of people espouse and then uses those beliefs to criticize it. Now, the place where this vision of a society in which equality might exist, of course, was the United States. I have already pointed out in this podcast that the United States is not, was not, a Christian country in any official sense. But as Holland puts it, that all men had been created equal and endowed with an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness were not remotely self-evident truths. In other words, they're self-evident to those of us whom such words are so familiar, but they're not self-evident in the sense in which they can be firmly grounded. Even if we rightly say that such a statement was clearly marked by Christian ideals and principles, there is no explicit Christian scripture on which such ideals and principles can be grounded. What the framers of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were able to do was to disguise their sources. Holland writes, the genius of the authors of the United States Constitution was to garb in the robes of the Enlightenment the radical Protestantism that was the prime religious inheritance of their fledgling nation. This point also helps explain why there's so much confusion about the founding of the United States. The founders were not necessarily Christian, many were deists, but they had drunk so deeply from the well of Christian ideals and principles that these ideas did seem to them as if they were truly God-given. The best way to have Christian values accepted as widely as possible is to teach them without mentioning any connection to Christianity. That's precisely what Ben Franklin, a deist, recommended. Promote Christian teachings without mentioning them having been derived from Christianity. That was the formula for getting people to accept Christian values as universal values. Holland points out that the idea that the universe was in any way concerned about human rights was just as fantastical as belief as anything found in the Bible. Yet both the American and French revolutions were founded on such a belief. While that belief clearly came from Christianity, it needed to be proclaimed as something universal in order to be accepted by all. 
Holland reminds us that this vision of the moral order is not universal. And in the past, the opposite vision reigned. And here I'm quoting him. Everyone in antiquity had taken it for granted that infanticide was perfectly legitimate, that to turn the other cheek was folly, that nature has given the weak to be slaves. The Marquis de Sade made the point that the existence of human rights was just as unprovable as the existence of God. And, of course, that's true. Of course, as we've discussed on this podcast, whatever your basic beliefs are, they are by definition unprovable. Everyone starts from somewhere. People often assume that the burden of proof is on people who believe in the existence of a god. But starting with the assumption that there isn't a god is no more neutral than starting with the assumption that there is one, which means, of course, that there isn't anything like a neutral ground to start on. Here we must say something about the distinction that arises between the sacred and the secular. In order to make the conception of religion as an individual thing work, there needed to be a division between what is what we call sacred and what we call secular. Protestantism made this distinction both possible and necessary. In Roman Catholic countries, the idea of religion being an individual private thing didn't make a whole lot of sense. Catholicism has always been seen as a religion that's much more social than individual. But the Protestants' conception of religion claimed to dominate, not least because it was easier to make into something private. But this, of course, requires a further distinction. The idea that there is something like a sacred realm only makes sense if it can be differentiated from something that we could call a secular realm. In other words, the distinctions between theology and philosophy, faith and reason, belief and unbelief, ultimately have a political dimension, just as they did for the ancient Romans, just as they did for Paul and Jesus. For the distinction is really between the authority of the church and the authority of the state. When Kavanaugh points out that what was at issue in the so-called wars of religion was actually, and here I'm quoting, the very creation of religion as a set of privately held beliefs without direct political relevance. Seculum, that which incurs in ordinary time, becomes the province of the state. In American society, such a separation has been part of the very bedrock of the social and political order ever since the revolution, though recent events remind us how fragile and problematic this distinction turns out to be. At the same time that Christianity is becoming a private religion, Holland points out that Jewish congregations started to see themselves in terms of their beliefs rather than simply ethnic origin. Of course, the sacred-secular distinction was more a way of navigating problems between two realms than an actual distinction. It doesn't really have any basis. It's totally artificial. Due to Christian influence, slavery finally came to be seen not as a privilege or a virtue, but as backward, unenlightened, and savage. But Christians were able to reframe the issue so that it wasn't Christian per se. Instead, it becomes a crime against humanity. In other words, it's been put in totally secular terms. Social reform, particularly the concern for disparities between the wealthy and the poor, became an important part of the Enlightenment agenda. 
Karl Marx was no Christian, but the kind of society he envisioned was deeply Christian in nature. Here's a description from Acts 2.45. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. That's a description of the early church, and that's Marx in a nutshell. Even the terminology Marx uses is very Christian. Exploitation, enslavement, avarice. Now, one thing I find a little surprising is that Holland doesn't really mention Adam Smith, um, and perhaps that's just because he doesn't think that it connects enough with the story of Christianity. But, of course, I pointed out that Smith's Wealth of Nations needs to be read alongside his theory of moral sentiments. And one can argue that that book lays out ethical foundations that are clearly Christian in basic content and form. In other words, however much the capitalists disagreed with the Marxist, there was general agreement that oppression was not a good thing. The main difference was what one did about that. One of the reasons Holland's book is a delight to read is that he interacts with Nietzsche at key points in the book. And I think this is really helpful because he sets up his book as in some ways a kind of response to Nietzsche. Nietzsche takes aim at much that passes for morality. So here's something that he writes. The human being who has become free, not to mention the spirit that has become free, steps over all the contemptible sort of well-being dreamt of by grocers, Christians, cows, women, Englishmen, and other Democrats. The free human being is a warrior. Now, Nietzsche's point here is that Christian morality is not natural. Although Nietzsche is often assumed to be the enemy of all that is good, he actually affirms the basic sorts of morality that, that are affirmed by most, most cultures. Like he thinks that lying and stealing and murder are all bad. Um, in fact, at two different points in his text, he makes the point that the general sense of morality found in Western culture is correct. It's the part about loving the enemy that Nietzsche thinks is distinctively Christian and that Nietzsche doesn't like. But Nietzsche also believes that if belief in the moral God is over, then the morality of that God is also finished. In a short section titled G. Eliot, he's talking here about George Eliot, the pen name of Mary Ann Evans. Eliot, or Evans, grew up as an evangelical, but then drifted away from that. What really annoyed Nietzsche was that the more evidence for giving up on Christian morality appeared, the more people like Eliot were determined to hold on to it. So here's a long quote from Nietzsche. They've gotten rid of the Christian God, and now they think they have to hold on to Christian morality all the more. That's English logic. We don't want to blame it on the little moral females a la Eliot. In England, for every little emancipation from theology, you have to make yourself respectable again as a moral fanatic in the most frightening way. Over there, that's the penance one pays. Things are different for the rest of us. If you give up Christian faith, you pull the right to Christian morality out from under your feet. This morality is simply not self-evident. One has to bring this point home again and again, despite the English dimwits. Christianity is a system, a view of things that is conceived as connected to whole. If you break off a major concept from it, faith in God, you break up the whole as well. There are no necessities left to hold on to anymore. 
Christianity presupposes that human beings do not know, cannot know, what is good and evil for them. They believe in God, who is the only one who knows it. Christian morality is a commandment. Its origin is transcendent. It is beyond all criticism, all right to criticism. It is true only if God is truth. It stands and falls with faith in God. Nietzsche thinks that Christianity is scandalous, just like Paul does, though Nietzsche doesn't think of it in a good way. Instead, Nietzsche writes, the measure of a man's compassion for the lowly and the suffering comes to be the measure of the loftiness of his soul. For Nietzsche, this is a low point indeed. Paul thinks Nietzsche has managed to invert all the historical noble values, which Nietzsche thinks is kind of a catastrophe. The Marquis de Sade takes a somewhat similar position, dividing the world into those who are naturally masters and those who are naturally slaves. The point of such a division is that there is no such thing as equality. People are not equal in any meaningful sense of the word. But so are all other notions. The idea that might makes right, that the strong deserve better treatment than the weak, none of these ideals or values can be justified by philosophical argument. They can only be justified by force. I'm stronger than you are, therefore you have to obey me. And of course, then we come to a basic question. What sort of society do we want to live in? One that privileges the strong and the wealthy? Or one that cares about everyone? You can fudge a little bit regarding your answer, but at the end, it's actually a fundamental choice. It's really not possible to fudge. Now, I think where Holland's book really shines is in its last chapter titled Woke. He spent an entire tome explaining how Christianity transforms the West, and I think he does a masterful job doing it. But here he turns to our current controversies and shows us that, that every one of them grow out of Christian ideals. Holland first turns to the evangelical supporters of Donald Trump. Holland describes Trump as the very embodiment of toxic masculinity, and yet he was supported by millions of people who claim to live in a very different way. It's at this point that Holland arrives at something profoundly important. It's a long quote, so please listen carefully. There had always existed in the hearts of Christian people a tension between the demands of tradition and the claims of progress between the prerogatives of authority and the longing for reformation, between the letter and the spirit of the law. In reality, evangelicals and progressives were both recognizably bred from the same matrix. If opponents of abortion were the heirs of Macrina, who had toured the rubbish tips of Cappadocia looking for abandoned infants to rescue, then those who argued against them were likewise drawing on a deeply rooted Christian supposition that every woman's body was her own and to be respected as such by every man. Supporters of gay marriage were quite as influenced by the church's enthusiasm for monogamous fidelity as those against it were by the biblical condemnations of men who slept with men. To install transgender toilets might indeed seem an affront to the Lord God who created male and female, but to refuse kindness to the persecuted was to offend against the most fundamental teachings of Christ. The difficulty, then, is that every single division in the West today is grounded, both sides, 
in Christianity. It's not difficult for me to understand that people think I'm queer and I should be avoided. That would be to validate the smattering of passages in the Hebrew and Christian Bibles that touch, or at least seem to touch, on same-sex relations. But there are many passages that encourage love and concern for the stranger, the widow, and the orphan. These are all categories that require extra protection. Given that we now know that homosexuality is not something one chooses, wouldn't the kind of vulnerability of the LGBTQ plus community likewise require extra concern? Holland does the same thing with the Me Too movement. He says, and here I'm quoting, implicit in Me Too was the call to sexual continence that had reverberated throughout the church's history. The human body was not an object, not a commodity to be used by the rich and powerful as and when they pleased. Two thousands years of Christian sexual morality had resulted in men as well as women widely taking this for granted. Had it not, then Me Too would have had no force. None of the revelations of sexual harassment and much more which were coming unveiled could be seen as wrong apart from a moral framework in which every man and woman is truly created as having value and dignity simply because they exist. Likewise, feminism as a movement is unthinkable without Christianity. Because, of course, it also goes back to Paul. In Christ, there is no male, no female. But that notion becomes even richer when the cause of white women is joined by women of color, poor women, disabled women, because it becomes more Christ-like. Jesus made a point of intermingling with a wide variety of people from his community, and he also made it clear that there was no social hierarchy. As we've discussed, one major message of the parable of the Good Samaritan is that our neighbor includes people we don't like <laughs> and those who don't like us back. Indeed, that's why this message is so important. We would like to all be able to say, this little group, see this little group? I'm, I'm responsible for these people. Those other people, I don't have any responsibility for them. Wouldn't that make our job as moral agents so much easier? But Jesus doesn't go for the easy message. That same message gets picked by Paul in his famous proclamation that there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. There's no hierarchy anymore. It's at this point in the story that Holland returns to his own loss of faith, but in a way that's quite telling. His grandmother was dying due to a stroke, and so he was faced with death, and he began thinking about what it meant to be a Christian. He makes the point that despite humanists' stated ambition to provide an alternative to dogmatic religion, the result was a different kind of religious belief. By the way, that phrase, an alternative dogmatic religion, comes from the Amsterdam Declaration of 2002. It is telling that an official document would be so explicit in its aims. Holland goes on to point out that they seek to escape from dogmatic religion by way of the applications of the methods of science. But of course, as we've already noted, this is merely changing one redemption myth to another. 
We certainly need science. I'm certainly not saying that. But the idea that science will save us doesn't have a very good track record. Perhaps people like Mark Zuckerberg think that their apps have made the world a better place. But there's a lot of room for disagreement and a lot of evidence for the other side. Toward the end of the book, Holland returns to initial love of dinosaurs and uses their relation to birds to advance a thoughtful thesis. He writes, The more the evidence is studied, the hazier the dividing line between birds and dinosaurs has become. The same mutatis mutandis might be said of the dividing line between agnostics and Christians. His point is simple enough. It's difficult to decide who counts as a Christian and who doesn't. That's one reason why polls are problematic. Even people who check the, the nun box may do so simply because they don't identify enough with any of the listed religions, which could be a problem with the list, or it could be a problem with the person who is checking a, a box and doesn't realize that he or she is actually more religious. While Holland never makes this point, surely one aspect of thinking about Christianity in this larger way would make us realize that we are all actually, whether we like it, whether we admit it, borrowing from the Christian tradition. Holland points out that all of the humanistic claims that undergird Western society come from the Bible. To quote him, that human beings have rights, that they are born equal, that they are owed sustenance and shelter and refuge from persecution, these were never self-evident truths. The West may give up Christianity in terms of belief in God and related metaphysical matters, but that does not mean that it is no longer Christian. My own take is that we are currently in a time in which the Christian concern for the weak and the vulnerable is expressing itself in new and truly important ways. I think the value or concern for human life has actually grown larger in our society. But of course, such shifts are disruptive. Jesus was clearly a disruptor for his time. But I think Western society is still figuring out what it means to be Christian. I mean this in a couple of sentences. One is simply that the old ways of measuring, such as how often one attends church or reads the Bible or prays, may not tell us that much. The future of Christianity may not look the same. But I also mean it in a second sense. Perhaps what it means to be a Christian still hasn't been formulated. Or perhaps it needs to be reinvented over and over again. I don't know. I'm still asking questions. I'm still on my way to becoming. But I do want to close with a quote from Holland. He writes, Crucifixion was not merely a punishment. It was a means to achieving dominance a dominance felt as a dread in the guts of the subdued. Terror of power was the index of power. That was how it had always been and always would be. It was the way of the world. For 2,000 years, though, Christians have disputed this. Many of them, over the course of time, have themselves been agents of terror. They put the weak in their shadow. They have brought suffering and persecution and slavery in their wake. Yet the standards by which they stand condemned for this are themselves Christian. Nor, even if the churches across the West continue to empty, does it seem likely 
that these standards will quickly change. Thanks for listening to Unbecoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. You can contact us on Twitter at UnbecomingPod and Instagram at UnbecomingPodcast. If you have any questions or suggestions for the podcast, please write to unbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing on the podcast, perhaps you might consider supporting it at patreon.com slash unbecomingpodcast.